In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We don't get many hallelujahs here, or amens, or say it one more time, or something like that. Um, it's good to be in Melbourne. I'm still kind of under the influence of jet lag, so you must excuse that. Um, a lot of questions often asked is, why would you want to go to a dangerous place? Why would you want to risk your life um, in a place that is, or a region of the world that is so different to Australia and is so different to what we're used to, uh, you know, growing up here, our school system, our hospital system, our government system, the security that we have here, the economic stability, the political stability, the hygiene, the security, um, the human rights issue. Why would you want to go and live somewhere where there are so many um, dangers? So let me, if I may, and in particular... Why Sierra Leone? I mean, there are many African nations. There are many nations in the world that one could choose from. You just take the globe, spin it around, put your finger on it, and it would not come to Sierra Leone. So why, why would one choose to go to Sierra Leone? From Kenya, um, many years there, um, when I realized what was going on, in West Africa, in terms of all the troubles that were going on, and comparing Kenya, which I always thought was a poor country compared to Australia, but then comparing Kenya to Sierra Leone, it was like comparing New York to um, Ulaanbaatar. It's the capital of Mongolia. Maybe Ulaanbaatar is good, I don't know. Sierra Leone, where on earth is it? It's in West Africa. This is just the, um, the so-called um, uh, the Cape of Africa. Sierra Leone is a, is a small nation at the bottom there. Uh, it is surrounded by Guinea, Liberia. Uh, as we go down, we go to uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana. Uh, that's, that's West Africa. Okay, the, the heart of West, from Nigeria on to Senegal, the Gambia, that's West Africa, with Mali and so forth. We do have certain dangers in, in these areas here. Um, some of you have probably read about Boko Haram. It is an Islamic fundamentalist, Islamist, Islamist, um, group. Um, which is now linking up with ISIS, the group, the Islamic State, um, and they're trying now to capture North Africa, 
with this fundamentalist jihadic uh, program. Boko Haram is more or less the now the uh, ISIS agent in West Africa, and they are approaching us. They're mostly North Nigeria, uh, Mali, um, and uh, north of Ghana, uh, Burkina Faso, and, 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 and their aim is to bring this brand of jihadic Islamism into North Africa. It is quite awful, it is quite frightening, um, this brand, this interpretation of Islam, because if you, one reads the Quran, there is, there's clearly a very peaceful side to Islam. There is even the word salam alaikum means uh, peace be with you. Um, every time the, the, the Prophet Muhammad is mentioned, you know, blessed be his name or peace be upon him. So there is a very peaceful side to Islam. But there is this other side which they have chosen to, to, as it were, hook onto and to espouse as their basic principle. Uh, looking on the West and looking at Christianity in particular as an evil, um, as a distortion and uh, needing to be eradicated. Okay. In the case of Boko Haram, their basic philosophy is that, um, Western education, Boko means a book in Creole, Haram is shameful. Haram, something is haram is shameful. So the Western books are shameful because they do not acknowledge uh, Allah, they do not acknowledge uh, Muhammad and so forth, the Prophet Muhammad and so forth. So um, we are now facing this danger. It's one of the dangers we are facing in, in West Africa of the coming of ISIS and, and, and Boko Haram. So that's why would you want to go there? Okay. Um, now, I'm going to switch from that, and there are other danger zones in, in West Africa, which I will illuminate in a few minutes. But the reason why we Orthodox will need to go to regions that are being threatened by Boko Haram, we would need to go into regions where are being threatened by ISIS. We would need to be in there, despite the danger. Why? Yaki, why would you want to do that? You know, why can't you just forget about that and just, you know, have a normal life in Australia and, and, and be done with it? And God will still understand and God will still bless it naturally. But why the danger zones? And why mission? I need to go back 2,000 years into, to explain that phenomenon, into early Judaism. That is the Judaism that existed prior to the time of Jesus um, with the so-called Second Temple period, uh, in which Judaism is colonized by the Greeks, uh, the, the other he of Alexander the Great, bringing Greek culture into Israel and Greek um, values, uh, including the athletic games and running naked, uh, part of the Olympic Games, which shocked the, the Jews, um, uh, the eating of pork and, and, and other as well as the aesthetic side of Greek culture and the, and the philosophical side of Greek culture. What happens during that period is that um, the Jews, some of them hook onto this Greek culture, some of them react very strongly against it. And those that react against it um, become apocalyptic or um, they become end-of-the-world type uh, sects. 
okay? Um, one of them is known as the testamental literature. Um, the testament of Isaac, the testament of Jacob, the testament of Abraham, etc., etc., in which the patriarchal figure, Isaac, Jacob, or Abraham, um, speaks his final words. And the final words, the last will and testament, um, are usually the dying patriarch is, is talking to his son, his favorite son, or to his wife. And it is a um, sort of what is known as apocryphal literature, but it embraces the mood of Judaism just before Jesus. So in other words, Jesus would have been aware of these literary genres known as apocalyptic and testament literature. Um, the patriarch figure um, blesses his son or blesses his wife uh, and his favorite son and his favorite or, or his wife and issues final statements. Usually the final statement takes the form of a summary of what the patriarchal figure desires of his progeny or the other horse. Okay? And, and then there's the blessing and he dies. Now, why am I talking about this? Okay? If you look at the New Testament, which is a Jewish text, okay, a messianic Jewish text, right? Um, you see a lot of the Jewish elements of literature coming in. One of them is this testament issue. What are the last words of the ascending Jesus? That's very important Jewish culture. Matthew Gospel is a heavily Aramaic text with a lot of um, Jewish symbolism. It is the only text where Jesus says, refers to the Gentiles as takinaria, the little doggies. It's just, uh, the, it, it is an exclusively Jewish statement, okay? Um, there are other elements of Judaism in the Gospel of Matthew. But in the Gospel of Matthew, we must expect now that the final words that Jesus, the Son of God, will utter to his own sons, to his own family, to his departing self, must summarize the basic and most significant part of his teachings, that which has the most urgency about it, that which rings as absolutely um, most significant. So it's interesting that when we compare the last words, the last testament and will of Jesus before he ascends into heaven with the literature of Judaism of that time, then we conclude and we say, this is important. What Jesus says in his final words is terribly important for him. But what does he say? It's interesting. The last words are, that was spoken in Aramaic, by the way. Um, translated, Go ye therefore to, the, to all the nations. The word nations in Hebrew is the goyim, the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish. 
okay? The concept of the elect and the, and the goyim. Um, you know, going into the house of a goyim, you know, when Jesus is invited by the centurion, a Roman Gentile, to go into his house, um, he says, well, you should not come to my house because I am unclean, you know. Um, but the, So what Jesus is, is turning it upside down, the whole concept of the goyim, the nations, right, taethni, uh, and he's saying, no, we must go to them. We must go to the goyim. We must go to the non-Jews. And we must make them disciples of the Messiah. So it is a radical, I mean, for most of us, we read that, we, you know, okay, go to the world, world, da 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 and we forget that this is a, a revolutionary statement concerning who is elected and who is not elected. In the final words of Jesus, we are all elected. The barriers, the ethnic barriers, the religious barriers between the Jew and the Gentile has broken down in this statement. And there are other statements as well, but it's interesting, that's the final statement, the last will and testament of the ascending patriarch, Jesus Christ, you see. So we have in here the, the heart of Jesus. Please go to the whole, all the nations, go to the Gentiles. Don't stay here in Israel. Go to, don't stay here in Galilee. This, this was spoken in Galilee. Go to all the Goyim. Go to all the Gentiles. Preach the gospel. Baptize them. And, and, and then, and then continue to assist them. This is why we are in Sierra Leone. This is why we are in Africa. This is why we go to danger zones. This is why we choose to, um, we elect to go to danger zones in order to fulfill the last will and testament of the ascending Christ. Amen? Hello? Can I get an amen? Aha. I like it. Okay, so having said that, it is the obedience to the last will and testament of Jesus. Why, why are we going to danger zone? Obedience to the last will and testament of Jesus, the ascending Christ. Having chosen to go there, then one becomes aware of the incredible challenges that one is faced, one is faced with. Ground zero is a term that has come into effect from the um, Al-Qaeda um, bombing or the airplanes that, f that flew into New York, the, the towers of New York, and that's what's called ground zero. It's a military term. It simply means the very heart of, of an event. It's called ground zero. Uh, where a bomb falls, that's ground zero. Uh, where action takes place, where it's the heart of it, that's called ground zero, Okay. So we have a lot of ground zeros in, 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 in West Africa and specifically in Sierra Leone. One ground zero that we have is a health ground zero. The, uh, it's a malarial ground zero. If you want to know what malaria is, come over to Sierra Leone. I mean, I have to sleep with a net. Um, um, I, I have to be careful not to allow water to remain in a, 
in a sedentary position. In other words, I have to remove any possibility at night um, before one sleeps to, if there's a bucket with a little bit of water, throw out the water. If there's a, a glass that you're half full, uh, you've just drank some water or whatever it is, throw it out. Don't leave any liquids um, alone because that's the breeding place of the mosquito, you see. So, uh, and, and then again, uh, with the mosquito, um, it's not all mosquitoes because I get bitten quite a bit by mosquitoes at night, you know, um, and, and it doesn't mean I'm going to get malaria, right? It's a particular type of mosquito and it's a particular, um, even it's, it's the female, but even then it's not all females. It's a particular, it's one that carries the malarial, um, virus in her system. And when she bites you, she injects the virus into you. Malaria is terrible. I've had malaria. But because I have money, I did not die. Uh, I went to the hospital. They know exactly how to treat malaria. I was given injection. It's a terrible, it's a terrible disease, by the way. It's terrible. You feel so tired. You, you sweat. And remember, the temperature there is like, you know, 36, you know, and then you're sweating, you're sweating, and you've got a splitting headache, and every joint in your body hurts, and you can't walk, and, and of course, the vomiting, and the diarrhea, and so forth, and so on, and, and, and one of the problems we faced when the Ebola crisis hit us was doctors were not aware. If you got malaria, they thought, he's got Ebola. And if you, if they thought you had Ebola, that was like a death sentence. Because you'd be taken away, put in a Ebola center, and then just moved out. And, um, and, and then you'd come into contact. Let's say you got malaria. And then you get misdiagnosed that you've got Ebola. Okay. So you get put in the Ebola center. Everybody there has Ebola. And you're just another person there. Hey, the chances of you getting it are pretty high now. And all it was, it was just, it was malaria, you see. That's one of the problems we face, seriously face there. Um, so it's malaria ground zero, and you get to know how it works and how to avoid it. So it's one of the challenges we have to face constantly. Indeed, indeed, when the first missionaries arrived in West Africa, the Portuguese, the English, the Spaniards, the Franciscans, the Jesuits, etc. When they arrived, the local Africans used to say, um, we don't need an army to destroy the Europeans. The mosquitoes will do it for us. And they did. And they did. I mean, the first generation of, of, um, of missionaries, the Jesuits, the Franciscans, the Anglicans, and so forth, they were wiped out. Wiped out by malaria, completely wiped out, until the discovery of the um, the bark of the particular tree from South America, and that is the um, the the first um, the first antidote to the malaria virus, um, and that started helping um, helping quite a bit. Um, so we, we are malaria ground zero. We are poverty ground zero. You can smell poverty there. Um, one of the poorest nations in the world, West Africa in general. That is not a criticism. It is not a criticism. It is an observation. And poverty 
makes you act in a very different way to when you are not poor. And, and, and the, the, the successful missionary must understand that, that people are acting out of poverty. Their reactions, their emotions, their, their, um, worldview, um, is based on an experience, an existential experience of what it is to be poor. And, you know, imagine all your life you've lived in a corrugated iron house, if you're lucky. Sometimes it's a cardboard house. Um, there's no shower, there's no hot water, forget all that, right? Um, there's no soap, uh, the clothes are limited, shoes are a luxury. Mattress is a big deal. Having a mattress is a huge big deal. Um, and so you grow up with those limited resources. You become very resourceful as to how to acquire things. So if we are to apply uh, Western values of honesty and transparency and so forth to someone who's struggling to live on a dollar a day, then we are wrong. And that leads me to one of the principles that we have adopted in our mission after many years of understanding this, which I will explain in a minute. So we have poverty ground zero, we have malaria ground zero, we have polio um, uh, uh, ground zero. Um, polio is a terrible thing. I'll show you in a minute. It's not just having polio that is so bad, right? It's the social consequences of it. It's the understanding that there is a curse upon you. West Africa is the home of voodoo, but they don't call it voodoo. They call it juju. When it went over to the Caribbean, it was reinterpreted as voodoo, but in, in the, the, the mother language is, uh, is juju. And so there is belief in West Africa, including Sierra Leone, that um, there are the walking dead. In fact, uh, in fact, by the way, if you want, if you, if you, if anybody comes into your house who's a zombie, right? Um, here is the advice: um, you throw flour, F L O U R, on the floor, and you open the windows and doors. It's just some advice I thought might come in handy for you, you know. Um, and uh, and there are other advices I've been given, by the way, which I won't. Uh, if you need to know them, let me know. I'll tell you later on. Um, but uh, with, with juju or voodoo comes the concept of being cursed. So if you are born and develop polio, explanation equals that somebody cursed you, somebody cursed your mother or something, somebody put a spell on you, on your family, and the result of punishment is you were born uh, having polio. Okay? Now, in order to get rid of the curse, a mother may um, dismiss her son or daughter and just let them loose in the streets. And what they do is they gather together in groups. They're very violent, and may God forgive me, but we I know because we've got a whole... I've taken an entire colony of them and, and, um, and uh, built houses for them and, um, you know, I give them money, uh, I give them food, 
Um, you know, we have rice supplies that come from Greece and Australia and, and, and so forth. And they all get good rice supply. I give them good accommodation. I give them, you know, for the sake of Jesus, of course. But they still have this DNA program inside of them that is the world is mistreating me. There is no social welfare, by the way, over there. And, and, and people who have polio are usually not well respected. So the only way I can survive if I have polio is to be aggressive and to assert constantly my authority. Because if I don't, I'm going to sink. I'm going to sink. So I'm going to threaten you constantly. I'm going to intimidate you constantly. They break into government meetings and scream and shout. They don't respect ministers. Um, we took a group of 35 families who were um, just kind of squatting in one of the houses of Freetown, the capital city, and we took them and built them, as I said before, housing, etc., food. But they still remain violent, and they still get angry. Um, and certain occasions, if you don't do what they want, they may, they may try to kill you. Uh, uh, quite embarrassing was our, our, the Archbishop came from Greece. Um, the Archbishop who is stationed in Guinea is also um, the um, patriarchal vicar in Athens. So if you go to Athens and you want anything to do with the Alexandrian Patriarchate, you would go to that office and he's there. And he came over to, you know, to ordain and to visit us with the patriarch, although on that occasion he was not with the patriarch. And I took him to Waterloo. This is where I have this compound with all the uh, disabled um, friends there. And I had them there for many years and you know, I thought everything would be okay, all right? So the poor man turns up there. One of them begins to shout at him, right? Now, this is a visiting archbishop. This is a dignitary that was given great respect by the government, you know, etc., uh, etc. Et but with my disabled brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean anything. What means is, what is important is survival. I've got to eat today. And I've got to live today. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the president. I don't care if you're the president of the United States. I wouldn't care less. All I care about is give me food to eat. And if you don't give me food, I'm going to take it from you. You understand? That's the attitude. It's very, very Darwinian, you know. So the poor man comes and, you know, he walks around and he says something to somebody. Uh, he was... One of the disabled was complaining about the roof. The wind had come and removed the zinc, and he pointed out to him that. And and, and his eminence said, "Look, we'll, we'll, you know, Father, we'll fix it. You know, we can't do it now, but he's going he's going to fix it, and you'll be right." No, that was not satisfactory at all. They picked up stones, they picked up uh, bars. They were going to kill the archbishop. The point is that they are angry people. You have to know that. And once you know that, you can, you can maneuver with that, you see. But if you don't know that and you're new, you can really hurt yourself. So these danger points that I'm talking about 
with experience and with time on your side, you can know how to deal with them. Many times a new missionary is dangerous. You know, I've had people come with such goodwill and good heart, but it takes time to understand. The radar system doesn't work in the beginning, you see. I can give you so many examples of that, but I won't, okay? I think you understand. So, and then having, we have, of course, ground zero in terms of violence, not only in terms of the people who we are assisting, but also in terms of political instability. I mentioned before Boko Haram, I mentioned before um, some of the uh, actual conflicts that are taking place there. But I also want to mention the civil war that took place in, in Sierra Leone for over 10 years. These all have effects on people, on the psyche of people. You, the missionary, you can't just walk in there thinking you know everything. You can't just walk in there thinking, oh, I know what I've got to do. I'm going to teach them this. I've got to, this arrogant attitude does not work. You've got to listen, understand, see, feel it, feel the pulse, feel the rhythm, feel the culture, understand it, and then speak. And I, 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 right now we're going through a challenge. Uh, somebody has come over to Sierra Leone who is a very angry person. If somebody does something wrong, they scream and yell. And if he, if he or she continues in that direction, they will be stabbed, they will be killed. They will be killed you see. Um, so there is great need. Um, those of you who have come over understand what I'm saying. Of patience and extreme patience. Extreme patience, right? Don't get angry. And there are things there that happen that will make you angry. The normal things that we do here don't happen. And your normal expectations of what we call professionalism or what we call, you know, ways of behavior uh, on the job, you know, um, what we expect from people, if it doesn't happen, and usually it doesn't happen, um, you just got to deal with it with patience and understanding. I'll get to that in a minute. So the, and then of course, uh, just to make sure that we have enough Ground zeros, because we want to have the world's best ground zeros, you know. We get Ebola as well, okay? Just to confirm it, you know, that lest anybody would doubt <laughs> that we have dangers there. Okay, now, how do you deal with this? Um, with, there is no orthodox um, manual... Uh, in meeting these challenges, you know, St. John Chrysostom did not write a treatise, treatise on how to deal with Ebola, okay? Um, we, we, we don't have a manual that you flick over, or page 18, okay, when a plague strikes, this is what you do. When you are confronted with this risk, this is what you do. It, it doesn't exist. So, you really are beginning ex nihilo, from the beginning, from ground zeros, so to speak, to understand how, how would the Orthodox Church react to this if it was common? If Ebola was all over the world, how would the Orthodox Church react to it? Okay? Or 
how would the Orthodox Church react in a civil war? Well, you you know, you go back to the Greek civil war and you think, okay, what was the role of the Orthodox Church there? And then you think, does it fit into this? Well, not really. This is quite a different civil war. And are there any other civil wars where the Orthodox Church was there? And so you, 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 your mind races to try to hook on to the tradition of the church vis-a-vis, um, these, um, challenges and, and, and they're not easy to find. Okay, so in a way, we are creating an orthodox tradition vis-a-vis what do you do if Ebola strikes? Um, what do you do when there, when there is a civil war? How do you deal with aggressive um, clients and so forth? In some ways, we are uh, discovering it, but not completely. Not completing. How? Well, I'll show you. Out of, out of years of missionary activity, you come up with basic principles that you stick to because they work. You've seen, for example, when I first arrived in Nairobi, in Kenya, fresh out of St. Andrews, I was lecturing there, I was lecturing at Sydney Uni, you know, New Testament studies, archaeology, blah, blah, blah. And I just went into Nairobi with that professorial arrogance. And I didn't realize that I had it. So I move into this seminary in Nairobi, and I'm told by his eminence there, Archbishop Bakarios, you are going to teach uh, New Testament and biblical studies. And I, of course, uh, that was great, and I, and I was very happy about that. So I began to teach in the way that I would be teaching in Sydney at the theological seminary there. If anybody didn't do their work properly, I would make sure they understood that, you know, why are you here? What is the point of you being here? Are you going to be a priest? What kind of a priest are you going to be? Um, you're not doing your work. How you expect, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da, okay? So I kept going that way. It was just the same way I would have done in Sydney, okay? One day, this guy gets up, and he's thumping his table with his fist, and he said to me, in front of all, obviously the students have been behind all this, we do not tolerate white dictators here. Uh, what? Me, white dictator? No, I'm from Williamstown, you know. <laughs> you know, I don't know anything about dictators. You know, so, but it hit home. I thought, what am I doing wrong? I must be doing something wrong because they're all saying it. And that was like a learning curve. And it is these learning curves, it is these experiences over the years that mature you so that you formulate principles that are effective and they work. Number one, forgiveness. Non-negotiable. We, you know, I have forgiven people who have stolen from me. Uh, please don't, don't take it that way. I'm not boasting. Please don't take it that way. You know, I, I don't want you to take it that way. Um, I, I'm just explaining, okay? Um, we forgive people constantly. We give them many, many chances, right? And what we find out, and I'll give you a classical example of that, what we find out is that the more you forgive a person, 
and give him a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a sixth, seventh, eighth, hundredth chance, they turn out good in the end. The town of, they turn out very good in the end. One example of that is the, um, uh, we had a, a gentleman that was taking care of a house that we were living in in Freetown, and he took our car. He jumped into our car, he took it, and then he had an accident with the car. The police dragged him by the throat in front of us, and it was expected that I would say, kill him, you know, thumbs down, because the crowd was all there, you know, like, that's what you do, you know, you, you beat a thief, you beat him up until he's blue in the face and he can't walk, right? And I said to the extraordinary disappointment of the local constable and the extraordinary disappointment of a crowd that had gathered there for a bit of a, bit of a violent, uh, you know, afternoon, I said, no, we are going to forgive him. What? We are forgiving him. But he stole your car. He did this and this. He smashed your car. Da, 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 da. Even my fellow priests were going, Father, what are you doing? I'm forgiving him. And, you know, fast forward with this guy. He's now a priest. He's now a priest, you see. So that's what I mean by you learn, you learn, you learn the hard way um, how to deal um, with the, the beautiful African people who are not us. They're not like us, and, and we're not like them. And you have to just to understand um, their culture and understand their problem and understand their challenges. I mean, I, I grew up in a fairly privileged environment. I was never hungry. I had houses. I had water, electricity, shoes, which I never thought of was anything special. I had a mattress. I slept on mattresses. I never thought that was special. I only realized that when I went over there and, 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 so the, and saw the denial of these poor, poor people. So forgiveness is... Is the uh, is the um, non-negotiable for effectiveness? It doesn't work immediately. By the way, it takes time. But once you set the motion, it's fantastic how it it produces at the end exactly what you want. It takes time though. It takes time. And at first, it seems as if it doesn't work. But over time, it's been proven over and over again. It works. The Great Commission is the other principle we use, which is, I've mentioned it before, you know, preaching the gospel, doing the church services, baptizing people, um, you know, bringing them to orthodoxy, explaining to them the ancient tradition of the, of the apostolic church. They've never heard of orthodoxy. Um, Orthodoxy is very new in Africa, even though we've been there for 2,000 years, you know, in Egypt and uh, Sudan and Ethiopia. But really, when it comes to the vast majority of Africa, we are very new. And many of them have never heard of us. They don't even know if we're Christian. Um, and so it's, it's like starting all over again. What is orthodoxy? You know, orthodoxy, we are the ancient church. We are the church that Jesus started. Well, how come you've come now? Why didn't you come when Jesus, you know? Well, you know what I say to them? 
the Sahara Desert. You know, between Egypt and sub-Saharan Africa, there's a Sahara Desert. And, and that's exactly why the missionaries could not cross over. Um, it took the Spaniards and the Portuguese to come by ships into Africa. And that's, that's how they spread the gospel. So, we spread the gospel, we preach, we baptize, we explain the tradition of the ancient church and its values and how, and this is what I do use, this is what I do use, I say, we are authentically African. We've been in Africa for 2,000 years. And, by the way, we've never had a colonial interest in Africa. I, I can proudly say that, that we've never had a Greek army coming into Africa, you know, uh, establishing a colony in Burundi or the Congo. Um, we've never had a Russian army coming into Africa, establishing, you know, a, um, a colony. Um, we've never had a Serbian or Romanian army coming into Africa. So I point all that out to them. I say, look, we Orthodox are clean from colonialism. We don't have a colonial background. And, and it's true. We don't. And, 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 and for that reason, by the way, I need you to know that Archbishop Makarios of Cyprus, the great Archbishop Makarios of Cyprus, became very friendly with Jomo Kenyatta, the founding father of Kenya, precisely for that reason, that we Orthodox do not have a colonial background. We never, we never took Africa and split it up into spheres of our influence, you know, controlled from London, controlled from Brussels, controlled from Lisbon, controlled from Madrid, controlled from Paris. We never had that. So that is a very great bonus in our preaching and in our uh, dissemination of what orthodoxy is all about. And then we have um, the other, f the four basic pillars that we use um, to confront our challenges. The other one being Matthew 24, I was hungry and you fed me. We never ask you if you are Pentecostal or whether you are a Mormon or whether you are a, a Buddhist or whether you are a Muslim. We feed you. Non-discrimination to the final point. And that has come to us as a very great name. It's, it's created for us very goodwill in Sierra Leone. Very goodwill. And so we feed people after church on Sundays. Right now, we have an extraordinary feeding program for the children of Ebola, the Ebola kids, the, the, um, uh, the parents who have died, you know, mom and dad have died of Ebola, so the kid is out on the street, or his grandmother is taking care of him, but the grandmother can't cope. So we are giving them hot food every day. You know, we're feeding around about 80 to 100 Ebola kids, um, you know, from Monday to Sunday. Um, and, and, and except for Saturday, um, you know, the cooks knew the holiday, you know, but, but the, the Matthew 24 uh, issue of salvation, who will be saved? You know, well, you can say, um, those who, you know, whatever. But if you look at the New Testament, clearly, who will be saved? Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said very clearly, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was poor or disheveled and you gave me clothes. 
I was in prison and you came, I was sick, etc., etc., right? And then they, but Lord, we didn't see you naked or in jail or hungry. That which you did for the least of my brothers in the third world, you did it to me. Come, enter into my father's kingdom. So salvation has a lot to do with charity. This is often forgotten. But any anybody who is a scholar of the New Testament or even a reader of the New Testament would, would immediately pick that up. You cannot be you cannot be a Christian and not be involved in charity. It's just not possible. If you are, then if nothing else tonight, consider that. Consider helping the poor. I don't mean Sierra Leone. I mean anywhere, anywhere, help the poor. Why? Well, even if you look at it from a, a selfish point of view, you are giving yourself blessings. You are offering yourself the opportunity uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you see. So um, that becomes one of our basic principles. James 1, uh, 27, true religion, authentic religion, James, is to help widows and orphans. That is true religion. So arguing about a calendar is not true religion. You know, identifying yourself as to whether you belong to the old or new calendar that's fine and it makes good reading and argumentation, but that's not true religion. True religion is helping the orphans and the widows, you see. So we come to the essence of Christianity, which is action, as opposed to words, just words. Words are good. We need words. The word became flesh, obviously. But words alone are not salvific. We also need action. And if I can be of any help, help the poor. Help the poor. In Australia, help the poor. And, 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 and that, now coming back to what we are doing, I'm sticking to that in Sierra Leone as the non-negotiable principles of missionary activity. Having done that, we find that people are attracted to us. We cannot compete with the Pentecostal churches dancing and singing and swaying and hallelujahs and so forth, we cannot compete with that. The African psyche is attracted to that. They're attracted to the dancing in the church and to the preaching in a very high volume and to the, and to the music that sways and dances and screams and yells. They love that. Our church cannot compete with that in, in, in that sense. So if you ask somebody to come for a two-hour liturgy where we try, I try very hard to Africanize the liturgy, very hard to make it like um, something that you can get sort of excited about. You know what I mean? And, and we allow them at times to play the drums and so forth. Um, but in essence, what, what is our strongest point is our charity. That is what we are drawing hundreds and hundreds of people to our church who want to be baptized and who want to adopt the Orthodox way. Without charity, we would just be another church competing. With charity, we become a church, the, a ch the church. With charity, we become the authentic Orthodox church. 
So that is how we are dealing um, um, with the risks, the dangers, the challenges uh, from Ebola to poverty to polio to uh, to uh, whatever, malaria and so forth and uh, so forth. Now, what are we going to do with your permission? I'm going to play you one tape, only a little bit of it. I'm not sure whether you've seen this, um, which clearly brings out the, the, the trouble or the challenge of health and the African child. I'm going to play a little bit of that. And it's going to also highlight what happens when the social consequences of polio, okay? It's, uh, it's, it's sad, isn't it, to think that we um, are constantly living uh, in, in a state of luxury. I, I, I know that you don't, maybe you don't see it, but I do see it um, when I come back. Um, my apartment, my shower, the mirrors on the wall, the, the parquet floor, uh, that's just unbelievable, you know, lights, electricity. We do live in luxury, and what is sad about our culture is the lack of awareness or understanding or consciousness that there is so much suffering outside of us. And we go about our business um, in a very routine way, um, I just hope that we as an Orthodox people can realize our privileged position here. I, I say our privileged position and then ask the question, what am I doing about this privilege? You don't need to be a millionaire. You are already rich uh, by, by having what you've got in, in a global sense, in the global sense. Remembering that three billion people on this planet are living under $2 a day, $3 billion. Huh? Um, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, by the way, because, one, it's not your fault. Two, you were born into it. It's not your fault that you were born into it. Three, um, you, didn't, you didn't cause this. This is something you've inherited and I've inherited. So don't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel guilty. This is something that God has given you. But my question is not that. My question is, what are we doing about it? Hallelujah. Amen. Okay. Okay. All right, so now you've seen it all. Um, we had a hard time with Ebola. It was not pleasant. Um, we had lockdowns. We couldn't... Um, let me just move. Um, there were days we couldn't move out of the compound. Um, in fact... It reminded me of some of the early Christian days. We were not even allowed to do church services because that would mean a lot of people coming together. So what I did was, we have one compound in Waterloo, it's called Waterloo, and we have the church on the compound. So uh, in order not to be spotted, we did midnight services, you know. So, you know, you're doing a church service, think the police are going to come and raid us, you know. So, um, yeah, that kind of thing. And, you know, there's... Uh, um, the, the most frightful thing was you can't get sick. You can't get sick because if you get sick with anything, the doctors were dying, the nurses were dying, uh, uh, hospitals were afraid to take people, 
And we just prayed. That's all we could do. The only thing we had was pharmacies that were open. And so you just treated yourself. That's all. And thank God, during all that period, I personally was never got sick. And it was only after now that the Ebola is going away that I got sick. It's really weird. But I, I can tell you now, none of the Orthodox contracted Ebola. So that's one of the medals that um, we are very proud of, that none of us uh, got Ebola. But it took a lot of hard work, a lot of hard work. And... Um, Lots of prayer, lots of, you know, petitions and lots of prayer. It wasn't easy. And had we contracted Ebola, the fate would have been a mass grave. Really, that's it. Um, just somewhere you're, you're thrown in there. Okay, I'll stop here. Thank you for coming. Thank you. It's, I know it's sacrifice. You've got other things to do. But thank you anyway. I thank Father Chris for the invitation to be here. I also have to thank Dr. Khan because during this week, uh, during my jet lag days, he, he, he helped me a lot, particularly today, to overcome certain, um, certain uh, challenges. So, yeah. Okay, are there any, any, any questions? How do you cope with so much suffering that's going on? Oh, how do we cope with so much suffering? The four principles that... If you believe in Jesus, right, and you believe that God has sent you there, and you believe you have a task to do, then you know he's not going to let you down. And you know you have a purpose there, and, and that's how you cope. Lots of prayer, lots of, lots of um, petitions as well. Thank you for your question. Can you tell us about the house for the orphans? Who ah, are yes, building? yes, yes. Thank you so much. And also, is, go is government helping to the orphans mm. at all? The government is not able to help because of, of, of lack of money. But they, they help us by giving us land, by cooperating with us, by making the bureaucratic work easier. You know, you have to fill forms in, you have to get permission, you have to register organizations like orphanages. But thanks be to God, I, I managed to go to the United States um, for a few weeks earlier this year. I didn't want to go, and it was a last-minute decision, but they were insisting and insisting and insisting, and they did tell me that if I do come, I, I would be able to get a lot of help. Uh, for the Ebola kids, and that was a special project. So I, I said, okay, I'll go for a few weeks. So I did go, and with the grace of God, we managed to get sufficient funds to build two huge orphanages. Um, we, we've started one, we're going to start the other one, and that will take care of something like 40 kids. In one of them, it will be... Um, for kids between three and nine whose parents have died of Ebola. And the other one will be for kids between nine and 15, 16, okay? And, um, and the plans for this Ebola orphanage are beautiful. And it's really going to be very exciting. Um, the Ebola orphanage is going to look like a Lego building. You know the Lego buildings? For the little kids, it's just got a beautiful, it's absolutely magnificent. Yeah, thank you for your question. I forgot about that. 
Father, uh, here we're facing a different challenge for our children in terms of the current push for same-sex union or redefinition of marriage. Um, what is your perspective coming from Sierra Leone? It's interesting that when President Obama came to Africa, and America helps a lot, uh, America really does help a lot in Africa, that's undoubtedly true, and it helped a lot in the um, Ebola crisis, particularly in Liberia, but he also brought with him this gay agenda in Africa, you know, and so he would go, you know, I understand where he's coming from, but you know, uh, he just kept pushing this gay agenda in Africa until finally President Kenyatta of Kenya respectfully said to him, you know, this is Africa. This issue does not concern us. This is a first world issue. Uh, we are not interested in this. Now, for a president of Kenya to speak in that way to the president of America, you can imagine the the dynamics behind it and the tensions behind it, you know. So um, it, it was sad to see that this agenda was brought into Africa. Um, Uganda has said no. No, we're not interested in that. But what happens is sometimes any nation that says no tends to be demonized by the press, by the Western press, and they become the bad boys, the bad people of Africa. So Uganda has said, no, we're not interested in, in this agenda. And their laws are fairly dracon draconian. I mean, I, I don't agree with their laws, but they are standing up for uh, basic uh, Christian principles. Having said that, I, I am concerned that Australia will also go that way. We need to be compassionate. We're not calling for, you know, beating people or, you know, punishing people. We're not, we're, not, we're not calling for such things. What we are calling for is that marriage is originally uh, found in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, uh, where God's plan is for a man and a woman to come together for the sake of procreation. So um, we cannot separate marriage or the word Pandriao, the word marriage, cannot be separated, even in Hebrew, from the concept as it originated with Adam and Eve. It cannot be separated in the biblical, in the biblical world. But since we are living in what philosophers call the post-Christian period, and when we are living in a period where Christianity has been pushed aside, uh, in the first world, in your world, it has been pushed aside, and where the word of Christianity is not taken seriously, and where the authority of Christianity is not considered, right? So what's the consequence of that? What will be the consequences where this happens? Clearly, um, the agenda is to bring in what is known as marriage equality. But marriage equality... In what sense? In what sense do we talk about marriage equality? The word marriage has a specific historical um, root. It has a specific historical connotation. 
We, after four or five thousand years, want to change that connotation. Are we so arrogant that four thousand, five thousand years of history and of accepted social conventions can be changed in one minute by a parliament or by a Supreme Court in Washington? Who are they? By what authority can they do that? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. So, is it a first world problem? Yes. And so, absolutely. Does that mean that our prayers, well, how do we engage in that problem here, or do we focus on more charitable um, endeavors instead of. Your problem here, my friend, is that you're not taken seriously. Your problem here is that Christianity is not taken seriously. It's a religious phenomenon. The problem here is that we don't have a voice um, vis-a-vis Africa, where I can go into the president's office and, and, and he, he will ask for a prayer. I remember in the Gambia, where we went to establish a mission, um, and the president of Gambia was not there, but his ministers were there, and he apologized through his ministers, and he said, pray for me. Pray for me. You see, so um, what we find there is that this concept of God is dead, it does not exist, you see. Whether it's through Islam or whether through Christianity, the atheism does not is, is 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 not there. It's a very very small group of people who would consider themselves atheists in Africa. So we have we have we have a religiosity over there. Uh, we have faith over there. Okay. So here, what has happened is the death of Christianity, the death of faith, the death of the um, of of the concept of a supreme God. It's been taken away from the kids in the school through the curriculum, very cleverly, by the way. It's been taken away from the universities. It's been taken away from the medical schools. It's been taken away from the mass media. It's just been, God has been put aside. Now, here is the question. What happens when you put God aside? Well, a lot of things are going to happen. You're going to reap the consequences of putting God aside. Have you ever wondered why Islam is rising so much in the Western world? Why is that? How come suddenly Islam is rising? How come in a few years most of England, um, the most popular name in England right now, by the way, do you know what it is? It's Muhammad. It's the most common name in England right now. Uh, the name that most uh, bo- you, newborn boys are getting. Okay, oh, that, That's cool. I don't have a problem with that. Okay. But what I'm saying is because the Christian churches, the Western Christian churches, uh, the, the lesbian bishop, the gay bishop, the gay this, the gay that, the gay this, the gay that, uh, coming from a sort of a human rights perspective, from a liberal 17th century, uh, liberal philosophical perspective, um, is simply flying against the, the basic tenets of Christianity. And I, I don't want to isolate um, lesbianism or uh, or any other form of um, uh, such activity, but adultery 
is also mentioned by Paul in the same way. You know, no one who commits adultery, who, who is a thief, who is a drunkard, uh, who is uh, gay, or the other word is used, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, says Paul, and then, but you repented through the blood of Jesus. Okay, and now you're acceptable. So let's not just stick with the gaze. What about adultery as well? What about fornication? What about pornography? What about all these other things that exist in our society? You see? So all these things have pushed God aside completely. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Or what are you going to do about it? Okay? What are you going to do about it is keep praying, Put pressure on government. You are a block of voters. You have voting power. The Greek community has voting power. Um, use your political means, first through prayer, and then use your cloud to make sure that these laws are not passed in a cavalier fashion. Hey, I came here to speak about Africa. <laughs> Father Temi, getting back I'm, to I'm, the orphans. I'm um, giving you advice in the first world, me from Africa. Imagine. Go ahead. I just want to go back to the orphans, the orphanages. How are you going to, you said the, um, the younger orphanage is going to 40, 40 children, is that right? Mm. What is the criteria? How are you going to select those 40? Good. It's a very good question. Now, when they see the orphanage, and when they see the quality of the building and the staff, everybody will suddenly become an Ebola orphan. You understand, right? So we're going to have to have criteria, Jane, how to select them. And we've already worked that out. We'll be working with the Ministry of Social Welfare. We'll be going through all the records to make sure that these children have really lost their parents from Ebola. It's on record. And uh, once we've done that, um, with the help of the government, this is where the government helps us, um, then we will choose the 40. So we'll have a short list maybe of 100. And then from that short list of 100, let's say one parent died of Ebola, the other did not. And let's say the kid is his parents died of Ebola, but his grandmother is able to take care of him. So we will look at the most um, necessary, the most urgent cases and take them and give them the opportunity of their life that they would never have had had it not been for, for the church, had it not been for, for the Orthodox mission. Thanks be to God, of course. Yeah. Father, are there any sort of education pro programs provided for the orphans? The, the orphan itself will have a kindergarten for the three to nine-year-olds, early childhood centre. We have an early childhood college. So the college and the orphanage are on the same site. So a lot of the teachers, or trainee teachers, will be um, able to work in the orphanage as well as part of their training, so it fits perfectly. And then we, the orphanage will also have uh, grade one, two, and three. Um, and then after that, grade four, five, six, and then high school will be in another compound that we call the Waterloo compound, where we already have a double-story building. We have a beautiful um, dining hall that we are refurbishing. Um, the infrastructure is there. So they're going to be 
happy little Vegemites? Is that what we say here? <laughs> Hi, Brother Themi. Can I ask you one last question? Uh, no disrespect intended, but when you said America has offered you two buildings for orphanages, may I ask, architecturally, could they not have simplified the building and accommodated, say, double the number of orphans? When I say America, I don't mean the government, I or mean the, the Greek Orthodox Church, right? The Greek Orthodox people in America. Um, so you're saying that instead of having a beautiful building, have a less beautiful building and put more people in. I understand that, but we also have limitations in terms of how many we can really take care of. Like, if you take care of a hundred, I don't know if you've seen some orphanages where they just crowd themselves with kids, right? That's not the way we're going to do it. We're going to do it so that the ratio of staff, teachers, matrons, and professionals working for the kids will be just right, okay? Number one. Number two, um, we believe that um, if we overcrowd the orphanage with people, then the quality of the service that we are going to offer is not going to be as good. Nevertheless, having said all that, we will still take care of other orphans, but not through them living on the compound. Like, for example, we will still have feeding programs for the orphans. We'll still have free school for them. You understand? So we can still take care of them. The only exception is that they will not sleep in the compound. They will not have their beds there. Yeah. But we can still take care of others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brother Femi, going back to the um, orphanages, um, what is the plan for these children? They're young now, and um, what happens when they finish high school? Is there a, a plan to stay by their side until they, you know, hopefully go to college and get jobs? Well, you know, fast forward, as yeah, the you say. Exit, the exit plan. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you're right. And that's one of the challenges. When they finish high school, they will have to leave the orphanage, right? Hopefully by then, this is what I mean by the quality of our education system, they will have an advantage. They will be uh, eloquent. They will be um, professional. They will be able to go to university or they will be able, and we can continue their assistance by sponsoring them through their higher education, but they will not live on the compound anymore. That will be the only proviso that will occur. But does that mean we cut ourselves from them? Not at all. We will continue until they become um, self-dependent. Um, we also have a college. My sister Mary has taught there, in fact, part of the administration. We specialize in training teachers to be uh, instructors of uh, the early childhood period. So we can take them on there and make them teachers, and we have schools. They can teach in our schools. There are many possibilities. There are many possibilities. Um, Father, my um, background is in aged care, so I guess my question stems from there. Um, what happens to the elderly in Sierra Leone in a lot of those poor nations? Um, obviously, they don't have the, um, the same life expectancy that we do here in Australia or in other developed nations, but um, it's a known fact that, that a lot of the developing nations will soon become some of the oldest as well. 
That's a very good question, geriatrics, the geriatric situation. We do what we can, um, given our limitations and given our agendas and given our sponsors' wishes as well, because uh, in many times it's very difficult to function um, because sponsors tell you this is what I want, right? There are many, there are many things like there's a church that I want to finish um, in this compound called Waterloo. Nobody, nobody's giving me money to finish the church, but they will give me money for the orphanage and they will give me money for um, other things, the school and so forth. But I've been struggling for five years just to get enough money to finish the church, and and. They, they, they don't seem to be interested in that, you see. The other thing people are not interested in, which is vital, is toilets. You know, it's just not hip or cool to have a photo of a toilet in Athens and say, I built that, you understand. But it is far more, you know, cool if you've got a photo of a school <laughs> or, a, uh, or, or, a, or a water well or, you know, a dining hall or you know, some, it's just it, it just looks better. So a lot of a lot of our hygiene suffers because of that. So in some ways, we are directed by sponsors. Now, what I refuse to do, which you know is a temptation, is somebody gives fifty thousand dollars and they say we want this to be a school, and you think to yourself, we don't need schools anymore. What am I going to do now? Okay, let me build a small school and use the other 25000 for the, to finish the church or to build a toilet. But we don't do that. We don't do that. We, whatever the sponsors want, we will do. I can argue with them. I can send back a message and say, is it okay that from the $50,000 that I take 10000 to finish the church? If they say yes, I will do it. If they say no, I will not do it. So that is the policy when it comes to money because it, people are very sensitive about that. But because of that, because I do refuse to steal from Peter to give to, to Paul, so to speak, I, I find that some of our needs are not met as much. You understand? But it's funny, God eventually takes care of it. Eventually, it will be taken care of. You understand, yeah. And that's it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we'll do the Lord's Prayer again. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, now and always and unto the ages of ages.